For those who don't know me, my name's Vin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the honor and privilege of um, preaching God's word to you uh, today. Uh, for those who don't know, my, my mother and father-in-law are here, and so that means no mother-in-law jokes. <laughs> Until she's gone, and then, oof, let's go for it. Anyway, Psalm 46. Let me start off with this. Uh, my brother and sister-in-law, they used to own a dog, uh, one of those really small, cute dogs, and they named him Joey. Um, but we all, know, we all know a dog like Joey, okay? Joey's one of those dogs that's very small, but has a very big bark, right? So Joey barks all the time at the neighbors, at children, whatever it is. You know, maybe he's insecure about stuff, but like he just barks at anything and everyone. But as soon as you take Joey outside, out into the public park or whatever it is, and he sees a bigger dog or he sees a big stranger, Joey will bark. But when the bigger dog or a stranger sort of heads towards his direction, he stops barking and he runs between the legs of my brother and sister, completely terrified and fearful. So first thing is, if you're scared and you're running in between people's legs because you're scared, you've got problems. That's the first thing. But the main question I have for you is, do humans or do you react the same way as Joey? You see, culturally speaking, think about our society today, we use this very particular term here even in Canada, which is someone's bike, uh, I mean, sorry, someone's bark is worse than their bite, okay? Someone's bark is worse than their bite. If you've never heard of it, the term basically means that whether it be in public or even in social media, when we react in a certain way, we can make ourselves sort of, there's people that make themselves feel bigger and maybe more important than they really are, but privately and internally, they're terrified and scared. The question that Psalm 46 is addressing is partly that. It's asking the question, hey, where do you and I go in times of trouble? Or what do you put your trust in? Because if you think about it, even culturally speaking, what do we put our trust in today? For some of us, we put our trust in food, Netflix, social media, money, physical strength, intelligence, marriage, and even within ourselves, something in eternal, internal. See, this is, not, this is not just a question that we need to ask today in the 21st century, but this question was asked even when this was written, before our time. And this will be a question that will be continually asked even after we're long and gone. It will still be asked. So Psalm 46 will help us deal with this question. So there are three main points I want to make in this sermon, okay? Three main points. And they are the testing of trust, the thrill of trust, and the triumph of trust, okay? The testing of trust, the thrill of trust, and the triumph of trust. So when you look at Psalm 46, you're going to notice that it's split up into three stanzas, so sort of three sections, three paragraphs. So the three stanzas are broken up into verses 1 to 3, 4 to 7, and 8 to 11. That's how it's broken apart. So we're going to go through each stanza to see how the psalmist gives us like an answer to this big question. 
about where we place our trust, but also gives us an answer of who should we trust, okay? Who should we trust and place our trust in? Okay, so Psalm 46 is a, is a psalm of trust in the face of overwhelming threats, okay? It's a, it's a psalm of trust in overwhelming threats when enemies or bad things sort of come your way. The psalms are saying, trust in this. So we do not know what the threat is, okay? According to Psalm, we're unsure what the threat is, why this person is writing this psalm. But some scholars believe that the threat is of pagan nations, okay? A nation outside of Israel that wants to conquer Israel. Biblical scholars, they get to this conclusion due to what is said in verse 6. But we're still unsure. It's not clear. But ultimately, this is still good news, It's good news because God's presence, that's what he's saying here, protects us. And according to Psalm 46, it it protects us not just from one thing, like like an enemy heading towards our direction, but it protects us from dangers, concerns, worries, pandemics, and everything else in between. So let me go to my first point, the, the testing of trust. So the first word I would want to highlight for us, the first word in the Bible there is the word, let me get it here, refuge, right there, okay? So God is our refuge. So the psalmist is reminding the readers of this psalm, as soon as you read it, there's this primary idea I want you to know, to begin with. This is the most important thing, that it is God himself, he is our refuge, So think of the word refuge as safe place or space. But the truth is, as Christians, as you read the Bible, you have to think sort of deeper, deeper than that. Go deeper than that. So put it to you this way. Um, Imagine that you're getting chased by someone that might want to hurt you. So a safe place or space would be like a police station, a police building. Or better still, ultimately, you should be a police officer. Because why is a police officer better than the police building or police station? It's better because if you got to the police office building station and the building was empty, it had no police officers at all, that would be no help to you and me. But if someone were to chase you, a person who might want to hurt you, and you ran into a police officer, that would be better than running into an empty building. Because we know that an empty police building cannot help, but a police officer can. So our place in space is not as good as the person. This is why God the Father is our refuge. He's not just a God of like empty promises, but he is a God who has proven himself in the past. God's faithfulness is like the police officer's badge and uniform. As soon as you see it, you can trust it. The second word I would highlight here in the passage, in the text, is the word strength. So the first two things is God is our refuge and strength. What does the psalmist mean by the word strength? Because if you read it to, if you if you were to read it like me, I would assume that as soon as I see the word strength, I would assume physical strength. 
I just want us to think of the word strength, okay? Think of the word strength um, in three different ways, but, in, but connecting ways. It's three different ways, but connecting, okay? So let me give you the, the first sort of example. First, I want you to think of a young adult man. Young adult, very sure of himself. He's in the gym, and he's in the gym staring at himself and looking at his muscles while he looks in the mirror, and he thinks to himself, man, that looks good. And he's lifting weights, he's flexing his muscles, he's hoping girls are looking. But he's young, but the, ba- the bigger, big idea is that he's young, he's full of energies, he has no real cares, there's no worries. He has no worries when you're that young. Until you get married, that's, but that is a different story. But the idea is that he has this, yes, his physical strength. The second thing to think of is a middle-aged man, about my age. He has this inner resolve. Inner resolve in the regards to the juggling of life. This middle-aged man has a wife to lead and sacrifice for. He has children who need his love and attention. And he has a job that demands his time and focus. And with everything that life throws at him, everything, he is steady and he's sure. And then finally, you've got to think of it as also an elderly man. An elderly man with all his strength, of all his years of wisdom. This elderly man has gone through every torment, every trial that life has thrown at him. And he's prevailed with honor and with dignity. And people all around him, all around this elderly man, they look to him for his strength of mind. You see, this is more than just about physical strength when you see the word strength, which God has, of course. But this is really about the strength of his character. Because of everything that he knows, God knows, and because of everything that God has done and gone through, God's strength is full and complete, lacking nothing. Even though the God of the universe has many other characteristics, these are the characteristics that the psalmist has focused on. Why? Because it's in relation to the types of danger heading our way. Because that means that you can put your faith and your trust in him when the enemy comes. You see, God the Father has the strength to defeat any enemy. Physical, spiritual, doesn't matter. Trust him because he has defeated every enemy in the past. Every enemy that has existed before you and he will defeat every enemy to come. The next word I will encourage you to highlight here in your Bible in the same verse is, is the word present. It's a very interesting word to use. So first, the first half of verse 1 is God is our refuge and strength. But in the second half of verse 1 is he's a very present help in trouble. If you're anything like me, when you're reading this, the idea seems unachievable, unattainable. Because if you're anything like me with your walk with Jesus, most of the time, Jesus feels really distant to me. He feels like he's up in the heaven somewhere, floating on a cloud, really far away. And he just is so far, so distant. But yet the psalmist is saying he's present. 
But how can he be present when the psalmist is saying, but the enemies are right there. The enemies are present. They're present. They're near. They're going to conquer. And you're telling me that God is present, close by, nearby? But yet, that's what the psalmist says. He's near and close and not distant. But here's my question and also my concern. If this is true, that God is with us during the most difficult times and the difficult seasons of our lives, then my question to us is, then why do I feel terrified still? Why do Christians say stuff like, but perfect love drives out fear, but I'm still fearful? Unless you have perfect faith and you're scared of nothing, but that's not me. I'm still fearful. Does this mean then God and everything he has said is a lie? The Hebrew word here for present has the same meaning. The idea of the, uh, the meaning of the word is, I'll, I'll write it for us. The word present means can be found when you, when you need it. Okay? That's the idea of this word here. Can be found when you need it. Okay, so think of it this way. I want you to imagine that you're at your home and you're watching, you're sitting on your couch watching TV and you're feeling a bit peckish. You, you, you don't want a meal, you just want a snack, okay? You know in your house, you know exactly where to go to get that snack that's necessary to satisfy that. It, and it doesn't matter where you are. So whether it be in your house that you're feeling peckish and you want that snack, or whether it be in the house that you broke into, you go straight for the pantry. The pantry is where you keep your, your snacks. The idea is this. But what you need to know with the word present here is that there's a proactive component to the word to stay with this example, you still need to get up from your couch and walk over to the pantry. Think about this. The idea here, church, the idea for you and for me is not to sit there on the couch and for the God of the universe, the God our Father, with all his refuge, with all his strength, to come now and walk towards the couch while you're watching TV and then God to come and ask you, oh, what can I get you? How can I serve you? What snack can I bring to you, child? No, that's not the idea. This is not a time to be passive. But we're called in our faith to be proactive. It's the time where we get up from the couch and walk over to the pantry. What the idea, the idea is that God has a refuge and strength. He's actually right there for you. And he can be found if you seek him but you've got to get up from the couch and walk towards the pantry. Men and women, brothers and sisters, church, we can, we can seek and find refuge and strength. Where? In his word. 
But that means you've got to read it. You can find strength and refuge in God when you pray to him. But you've got to pray. We can seek and find his refuge and strength through the power of his Holy Spirit. But that's his work. So please ask, seek, knock. The Bible promises that if you do those things, he will answer. But let me clarify, this does not mean that sad and bad things will never happen to you ever again. That is not a promise of the Bible. But it does mean that you know a father and a saviour that is bigger and better than those sad and bad things that happen to you and to me. You know like those times when my daughters fall down and they scrape their knees? There's blood and there's crying and they call out to me to save them. I go to them, I carry them inside the house, I bandage the wound and then I give them ice cream. When you think about that example, the truth is that the pain is still there, is it not? The blood is still there. And the wound that they have attained on their knee will become a what? A scar. But what's the point? The point is that their father being there is actually all that they really need. So, okay, that's just verse 1. Let's go to verse 2 and verse 3. In the next couple of verses, there are a few words I want you to notice and highlight. So there's a couple of words there, and they are the words uh, earth, mountains, sea, then waters. Okay, earth, mountains, sea, waters. What the psalmist is trying to give you here are these images, images of things that we sort of faithfully deem stable. Those things, those sure things in life, in creation, where you know for sure, you know, those things that, you know, those inanimate objects that cannot be moved, that's the imagery he's trying to give you, that you cannot move them. No matter how strong you are, you cannot move. Well, you know, where you left them yesterday, they will be there tomorrow when you return. So Christians and non-Christians alike see the earth, mountains, and the seas, and the waters as something sort of stable and unchangeable. But in regards to this imagery that the psalmist is trying to give us, he's saying if these objects did change and they did move, like if you went out back to the ocean, the ocean was gone, like completely disappeared. He knows those objects, if they were not there, would completely shake your faith. But what he's saying is that actually it does not need to. That even if you went back out in the ocean and the ocean was gone, don't worry. Because the things that we deem the most stable are not stable compared to God himself. That's what he's trying to say. That he's saying the earth, the mountains, the seas, the waters, as stable as they are, as sure as they are, they're small compared to the stableness of who Christ is. That's what he's saying. Even if you, even if you don't think of the earth and the mountains and the seas that way, then let's think about an everyday thing that you and I face. 
We think of money as being stable. We think of housing as being stable. Some of us will think of cryptocurrency as being stable. We think of our jobs as being stable. We think of our relationships as being stable. We can even think of our hearts as being stable. But time and time again, it has been proven otherwise. The psalmist is saying, hey, do not trust the things of this world. And the Bible will go as far as to say, do not even trust yourself. Because it has been proven to you over and over again that you have failed yourself. And the world has failed you. So the only thing you can trust is to trust in the Lord. That's it. This now leads me to my second point, the thrill of trust. If you look with me in verse 4, so look at me in verse 4. The word I will encourage you to hide and look at is the word river. It's an interesting term because previously he's talking about Earth, mountain, sea, these very stable forces, but the, the big key piece in verse 3 when it says, the waters roar and foam. The imagery he's trying to give you also is this imagery of like chaos, that the seas and it's roaming and it's, it's roaring and it's foaming, it's causing chaos. But now he gives you an image, a very opposite image of a river. There's a reason why this comparison is actually very important for us. The first thing is this. The the, the Bible's account of the flood, the flood in Genesis, where Noah and the big boat, where all the animals come on, we are told that it's Yahweh, it is the Lord who has sent the flood, sent the waters on the earth to bring his judgment onto the earth, to destroy the earth. He controls it, he sends it. But during this time, the same time, of the Bible, and the same time as the flood of Noah, there's another account of the flood in Mesopotamia. So in Mesopotamia's account around Babylon and all that, the gods, when the flood comes, cowered in fear. The gods of Mesopotamia cowered in fear behind the walls of their heavenly abode where they lived as the chaotic waters unleashed this fit of anger towards humanity, and it threatened, and the water threatened to destroy the gods as well. Even the waters were threatening the gods of other nations, except for the God of Israel. This was a time, when this was penned, this was a time when all were unsure about what the waters would do. There was a fear in regards to the waters. Let me explain it this way. Have you ever gone out to the seas? You know, here in Vancouver, we're right by water, which is fantastic. But have you ever gone to the seas out on a boat or, let's say, out on a pier? If you've gone out to the seas or out towards a pier in the middle of the night, whether it be fishing, crabbing, whatever it is, or just going on a boat, there is a very unsettling feeling, is there not? Because when you look out to the waters in the middle of the night, or down at the pier, or off the boat, what you're going to see in the darkness is what? A void, a darkness, an uncertainty. You don't know what's in the water. You don't know if anyone's coming your way, or if a shark pops up, or whatever it is. Because you do not know what's there, 
that's the thing that sort of makes us sort of scared and frantic and nervous. The second thing to note is that in the middle of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, there was no river. There actually was no physical river running through the city of Jerusalem. This must mean that this section of the psalm is referring to the city of God, or otherwise better understood as heaven. The, the city or place where God rules and reigns. The, the idea here is that, is that God alone can calm the storm. And in the place where God dwells, there will be no fear, only peace. This is why the psalmist gives the image of a river. Remember, the seas represent chaos, but the river represents this calm and peace like a river. The world is chaotic and full of turmoil and the world is always going up and down about what it thinks and feels, what's right and what's wrong. So it cannot be trusted. But trust in the Lord because he's like a river. Calm, still, peaceful and with a beautiful constant flow. See, enjoy and embrace that he remains steady and stable. This is important because the next couple of words I would highlight for us are the words that come in, uh, that come in verse 6. In verse 6, at the beginning, I would say, is nations rage, kingdoms totter. Nations rage, kingdoms totter. So even as civilization has advanced, think about our civilization has advanced, has it not? We got, we got AI now, ChatGPT, and it's just going to get bigger and better, supposedly. Electric cars, all these things. We've advanced, we've progressed. But here's something that the Bible makes a claim, rightfully so, I would say, about our culture, society, and civilization, which is that nations will rage. What the psalmist is saying is this, is that nations will always hate and fight with each other. There have been wars before you and I were born, were there not? We're living in a war right now. And, do you, and just, so, just to remind us and encourage us, even when we're long gone, there will still be wars to come. The truth remains exactly the same today and it will continue tomorrow. Nation will rage against nation. And the second part of that is that the kingdoms will totter. Totter is better understood as the, the nations, the kingdoms will fall. Okay, it will fall. Okay, so there's a book titled One Billion Americans by Matt Iglesias. I would not recommend, okay, would not recommend for you to read it. I read it for you, so you don't have to. But here's a synopsis of the book, okay? The premise of the book holds the idea that America is a great nation. If not, he argues, the greatest nation of all time. Because of its reach and its influence and social media and Hollywood and music and culturally, you know, what it's done for all the world. But he's saying his concern is the book is, is that America is slowly losing that influence. 
So he has two suggestions in his book, two major suggestions. The first is that America needs to increase its birth rate. The second is, is that America needs to increase its immigration rate. Okay? Because his argument is, is that if you increase the birth rate, then you can sort of indoctrinate the children being born to the country and shape them to be, you know what I mean, patriotic Americans. But also the same thing is that if you get more immigrants into America, you can indoctrinate them as well and make them patriot Americans. But the goal for him is it needs to be a billion. Why? Because some of the two big nations are at, at a billion. So in order to compete with the rest of the world, the United States has to, has to, according to his book, get to a billion people. But what has history taught us? History has taught us the same lesson over and over again. Think of every kingdom, every great kingdom in history. Think the Mongols, Roman Empire, British Empire. Did they not all want to remain the most dominant kingdom in the world? Did they? Of course they did, yeah? But history reminds us and keeps reminding us that all kingdoms fall. But we seem, for some reason, to still love the thrill of trusting in politicians and prime ministers and presidents and world leaders that are currently ruling, or leaders that will rule. We trust in the nations that seem to be good and that are biggest and best to somehow save us and help us. But Psalm 46 reminds us that nations and kingdoms come and go, but the Lord remains trustworthy forever he doesn't rage and he will not fall so this now leads me to my third and final point the triumph of trust the first word I would encourage you comes in verse uh, where is it comes in verse 8 so the main thing he says in verse 8 is he says, come and behold, what does it tell you to come and behold? The works of the Lord. Say, so, come and behold the works of the Lord. My encouragement is, though this is a great exercise of highlighting words for us to be more engaged in scripture, we have to go beyond that. He's calling us to be in awe and wonder of what God has done. I want to ask the same question that I asked previously near the beginning of my message, which was, if God says he's with us in the most difficult of circumstances, in my trials when my enemies are coming my way, then why do I still feel terrified and scared? If being near to God is supposed to cast out all fear, why am I still fearful? The answer actually comes in verse 9. If you look at verse 9 with me, there are three words I would highlight. And they are the words bow, spear, and then chariots. Bow, spear, chariots. So in the time when this psalm was penned, when it was written, bows, spears, and chariots were the, were the sort of the weapons that people would put their trust in. The people believed that through violence and their weapons that they could and they would be able to get their way. 
Because if you defeated the enemy, then you were the victor. And this would mean that you would get to have your way. You now become the God of the nation because you've conquered all your enemies. Today, that's a bit more outrageous in the 21st century. It's outrageous to want to start a violent war on a nation or on individuals whom we do not get along with. So my question then is, how do we wage war against others if we don't have physical weapons like bows and spears and chariots? Today, I will refer to our words and our social media platforms where we wage war against nations and against people. So he's not wrong. We put our trust in our weapons. And our weapons today just happen to be our words. And the Bible tells us that words are the most dangerous thing of all. It can lift up people or it can completely destroy them. But through what the Lord has done, he brings destructions to the things that we have said and done. God can put an end and will put an end to the things that we have put our trust in. So that's why we are told to come and behold the works of the cross, the works of the Lord. Jesus has brought war to our sins and defeated sin and death. Why? To do what? So that we can live. So come and behold the works of the cross. Don't wait until Easter, until we contemplate the works of God on the cross. But the cross is for every day and for every part of life. I want us to like continue and, and to think through and highlight for, for us the most famous verse in Psalm 46. Christians might not know all of Psalm 46, but they'll know this one verse. And if you're a new Christian or new to this whole thing or you're just visiting us, welcome here. Verse 10 is the most famous or the most popularized, the most well-known, even, even if you don't know any other part of it. But verse 10 says... For us to be still and know that I am God. You can quote that one and not know anything else. The word still in Hebrew, if you look at the word still here, the word in Hebrew is best understood as cease and desist. That's its I think, clearer translation. So think about it this way. I know you think my two daughters are angels. They're not. They're just little devils in princess dresses. That's all it is. <laughs> but I want you to imagine, you don't even have to imagine, it's a real thing when you come visit me. But my daughters fight all the time, right? They're, they're kids, they're young children. And sometimes they've got the door closed and they're fighting over a toy and I can hear them fighting. I want you to imagine that scenario that when I hear them fighting, as their father, I walk, I open the door and walk into the room and I separate the children from fighting. Now, the word still here does not only mean for them to be quiet and calm as much as it means to stop. 
Stop what you were doing and then be still. See, only, it's only when you cease, it's only when you stop your frantic activity can you begin, only then can you begin to experience God's intervention for you. This is why we've been called to cease and desist. Going back to the same analogy of my two daughters fighting and I walking into the room, to clarify the analogy, it's this. What it really means is for the two girls to stop fighting over the toy, but then to turn, turn to the one who has entered the room to call them to stop fighting. That's what it means. But there's a second component to being still, because once you've walked in, and now the kids have turned and dropped the toy, and now they're looking at you, what are they supposed to do? Just stand there and look? No. The part he tells you then in verse 10 is the word no. You've got to be still and then no. You've got to cease and desist and then to no. Tony Reinke in his book that I highly recommend is 12 ways your phone is changing you. I highly recommend for individuals and families to read it. In his book, he makes one major suggestion, which I actually completely agree with. And in his book, he talks about not just the generation now who's really grown up with phones, but the generations even before, because it's happening to older people as well, but also the generation to come. He says, nobody no longer knows how to stay in the moment. That's his argument. In his book, he he makes a suggestion, like I said, that I agree with, He wants you to imagine that you have your phone and you go on a hike. And as you go on the hike, or whatever it is, and you see a big mountain, or you see a beautiful lake, or a beautiful landscape, you go to the height of the mountain and you're looking out. He says, what we do today is that we look at it, we take a photo of it, and then we just move on. We take a digital image and a very quick mental image, we store it, We move on and we never look at it again. He's saying that's the habit that the phone has caused in us. He's saying, but how? When you hit the peak of a mountain, when you're at the edge of the bottom of the mountain, you see the beautiful lake, you see the landscape, his encouragement is, why won't you sit there? Sit there and look at the magnificence of that mountain. Why don't you look at the created order and look and realize that someone has created it for you to show his glory. That you will look at the created order and you will think, wow, amazing. But this must mean the person who created this is better than the created order in front of me. That's what he wants you to know. So I'm standing Instead of standing there before the mountain and landscape, wondering about its magnificence, we take the photo and we move on. We don't pause. We don't praise what's there. And we no longer come and behold the works of Jesus in the everyday. My concern for us is, does that now, if we continue this way, do we fuel our discontentment? Do we fuel our lack of trust in him? 
But if we pause and we pray and we look at the mountain, we look at the created order and the creator himself and at the cross of Christ, do we fuel our contentment? Do we fuel our trust? William Shakespeare, the playwright in the 16th century, wrote the play Richard III. It's not about Pastor Richard, but, but in this play, if you don't know the play, and all, all the high school students are like, I just got through high school and I had to do this through English. Pasavin, why would you bring this up? In the very first line, if you don't know the play, hopefully you'll recognize the first line of the play itself. Okay, so the first line goes like this, of this very historic play. Now is the winter of our discontentment made glorious summer by the son of York. So to be translated, because it's written in the 16th century, translated, it means life now is miserable, but tomorrow it will be better. Church, yes, I'm a pastor, doesn't really matter, but I'm like any other person in this room. I put on my pants one leg at a time, And I'm also that person that just wants, there's a part of me that wants 2023 just to end. I want it to end because I want to move forward to the better things, the greater things to come, you know? I want the next best thing in my life. Not this trouble and torment that I might be going through. But I'm encouraged. We should be encouraged. As Psalm 46 tells us, cease and desist. That we are called to, let's put down our weapons because, you know, there are still people here that need a friend. That we should, we should cease and desist because people still need to be encouraged today. That we should cease and desist because people still need to be loved. That we should cease and desist because people still need to hear Jesus proclaimed. I will cease and desist. I will come to know the incarnation of Jesus, the beauty and the majesty of that the creator of the heavens and the earth who entered into our dwelling place and becoming a child, a baby. I will be in awe and wonder of that. But Jesus himself has triumphed because of his incarnation, has triumphed over sin and death, and that means that we can trust in his triumph, but only if we look to him. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, loved, loved the book of Romans, okay? Martin Luther loved the book of Romans. But the favorite psalm of his is Psalm 46. Martin Luther loved this psalm so much, he wrote a hymn based on this psalm. I'm going to read it for us, even though I was asked to sing it. I was like, no way, not in a million years. And even that's not enough. But the hymn that he wrote based on Psalm 46 is called A Mighty Fortress. So I'm going to read it for us. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe, His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. 
on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that might be, maybe Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the, and the gifts are ours, through him with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let me conclude this one thought uh, uh, for us. Uh, when I was about six or seven years old, I don't remember exactly, I remember I was playing inside my house with my father. It was a very simple game. It was one of those games where dad was just chasing me around the house. But I remember very clearly running, running into the bedroom. I remember running into the bedroom, and I had enough time to run into the bedroom, close the door behind me, and then lock the door where dad was on the other side. But in my frantic running, you know, in the chase as a child, being chased by your dad, I ran, I jumped on the bed, and I sort of tripped a little over the bed sheet. And as I did that, I ran into the window that was right beside the bed, and the whole window shattered and smashed, completely the whole window. Nothing happened to me, but I was so terrified of what just happened. It shocks a child that's six or seven, that what I did was I ran, I got off the bed, and I ran underneath the bed to the deep corner and hid. My dad, somehow, I don't know how, he unlocked the door, walked in, and this is what I remember, what dad did. He knew I was hiding there. And then he crouched down. And he says, come out. But I was so scared, I didn't come out. And then my father called me by name and said, Vin, come out. It'll be okay. And as I slowly got out under the bed, I came towards my father and he hugged me. And he never mentioned the window ever again. Now maybe, maybe it's because of his old age that he doesn't even remember this story because I asked him the other day. But that's not the point. My encouragement to you and I is that it doesn't matter what you've done. You can put your trust in Jesus. You can trust that what he has done on the cross, you can trust that he is alive today because of his resurrection. You can trust him that he will not forsake you or abandon you. Trust him that he will forgive you, that he's calling you, that he will embrace you, and that it is in that trust in Jesus alone that he will save you. So come out under the bed. He's calling you.
Let's pray. So Jesus, for those who have put their trust in you, we praise you. We pause. We pray. We don't just take out our phones and take a snapshot and then move on. But we contemplate, we meditate, we dwell, we seek, we ask, we knock. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done on the cross. And we praise you as we will for all eternity with angels. And Jesus, for those of us who do not know you yet, would you help them by the power of the Holy Spirit for them not to look at the things that they deem trustworthy, the earth, the material possessions, the money in their pocket, the relationships, all these things, oh God, they fail in comparison to you. Jesus, help them to put their trust in you, knowing that you have, you're calling them out underneath the bed, that they do not have to cower in fear because of the sins and the bad things they have done. But as they come before you, that they look to you, that they would know you, and that you would save them. Would you reassure them of that today? And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.